Welcome to Private Market Talks, a Proscara podcast. I'm your host, Peter Antosh. Today, my guest is Claire Bayet. Claire is co-founder of Midcap Financial and president of the Financial Sponsors and Levered Finance Group. This year celebrates Midcap's 15th anniversary. And today, Midcap's capital under management exceeds $45 billion. And with Apollo Global Management as its investment manager, Midcap is Apollo's leading middle market direct lending private credit platform. But as with any business, you don't start at the top. You start at the bottom and climb relentlessly to the top. Sometimes that road can be very rocky. Claire, together with her partners, have climbed that hill and traversed that rocky road. Claire joins us from her offices in New York to share some thoughts on what it was like to start and scale Midcap into what is today a market-leading private credit investment platform. You'll find a full transcript of this episode at privatemarkettalks.com, as well as links to other useful information. Please, don't forget to subscribe and click like after listening. And now, my conversation with Claire Bayet. Claire, welcome to Private Market Talks. I appreciate you being here. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here today. I think we're at an interesting inflection point in the history of private credit today. It's in some sense a greenfield for private credit where the capital markets are shut down, the banks have pulled back lending. It's, it's quite a, an exciting time for private credit, but it wasn't always that way, was it? We've certainly seen cycles. I've been in private credit for many years, so I'm a, I'm a big proponent and see its value having started it early on and, and then with Midcap for the last 15 years, particularly. Yes. And, and you started Midcap with your partner, Steve Kerwin, in 2008, I believe. Yes. So it's a very interesting story. It's Steve Kerwin and Howard Woodruff and a couple other founders. And yes, we started it. We uh, technically closed um, September 16th of 2008, which if everyone remembers that year and that week is pretty incredible that it worked out. We met at Merrill Lynch Capital. So that's really how it started. Um, I met Howard on a deal in the late 90s. Um, so, you know, in a way, that's the genesis of Midcap. He and I came across, I was at Paribas and he was healthcare financial partners. And there was a company that was in common. And that's where we met. And a couple of years later, at the end of 2002, when he was going to go to Merrill and form Merrill Lynch Capital's healthcare group. He remembered me and called and said, would you come and join Merrill Lynch Capital and start our financial sponsors and leverage finance group? And I, it was an exciting time then and knew for what Merrill was doing at the time and, and said yes. And that year, Steve came on board and some of the other founders and we spent five years together building that business, which was you know, middle market leverage finance. But in addition, we had Asset and some of the other products that private credit offers and grew the business and was looking at continued growth there. But as we know, in 2007 and eight, the world began to change. For, for us, it really began to change at the end of 2007 when Merrill realized that they may have a real estate problem. And so they uh, thought that if they sold Merrill Lynch Capital, they would have a gain and offset the small loss on real estate. And maybe, maybe that would be a wash. Well, uh, they, you know, our group sold instantly. GE, mm -hmm. which is now Antares, picked it, picked it up immediately. And that 
sales. And, and GE at the time was the major player in the private credit in the early years of private yes. credit, weren't they? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. They were considered, um, in fact, the 800-pound gorilla. If I yes, correct. You know, and, and many people, both at you know, the places that I've worked and around, have spent time there too, right? Yeah. In, in their credit training and, and everything else. So it was definitely um, a learning spot for many people. As well, the they were considered program. the place to go to to get the, the training. Their training program was considered uh, one of the gold standards. Well, we certainly feel that that has helped our team and all the other places that we had our credit training and, and grew from there. But I, I did go to GE. I, I worked there for a month, <laughs> the month of 2008 of February, yeah. but decided I wanted to try something on, on my own. And, and Howard and Steve and I and the other founders were, were talking about that. So in March, as a free agent, uh, we got together and that's, that's when we decided it was the weekend um, of the Bear Stearns call, if, mm. if you remember that. So the beginning of the you know, questions around liquidity and what was going on there. But we moved forward. We hired Molis Investment Bank to raise uh, $500 million. And we, you know, we just came up with an amount. We said, let's try for six months, which would have been September 15th, 2008. This was March 15th. We said, you know, we may raise half as much or it may take twice as long. We knew there were other entities out around the same time um, trying to form and do a similar business, but we just forged ahead. Molis was a fantastic team. I had backing from GenStar Capital. I've known JP Conti and Rob Weltman and Ryan Clark uh, sure. since the beginning of GenStar. And when I was at Paribas, we were working with them. So they had said, you know, we'd like to put equity in you and get you started, but we want other equity investors as well. So we moved forward. And during that process, just before we launched the formal fundraising, Ken decided to have a division at Molus that did private equity. And so he decided to put in 75 million to 100 million through that entity. So we were not really out the door yet. And we already had, you know, close to 200, um, which was a nice start. That's great. And it was a terrific team that, that worked with us, putting our history together, our track records so that we, you know, we knew what we were marketing. There was a lot of interest in the market. We went through the, the, the typical rounds, you know, the teasers and the first rounds and the management meetings settled on Tom Lee and Lee Equity Partners who had had experience in the finance space historically and was a good fit. So we put that together, management put in um, a few million and we got to our 505 and we had Wells Fargo, a terrific partner from day one and has been a terrific partner every day since with some finance capabilities in addition. So we had close to 600 million capital to start. Which at the time, was a pretty good size fund. Yes. You know, can, can you give a, a sense of sort of the, at the time, 2008, the private credit landscape, what it looked like? Because it was very different. than It was very different. And whether the being called private credit or not, um, it's certainly when we were even at Merrill, we had a syndication group and we, you know, did lead and syndicate. But part of building that business like we're doing here um, and some of the others was to hold and to put a club, small club 
over the years, it's gone to where many times we're the only lender mm-hmm. or one or two. Whereas I'd say, you know, 15 years ago, it was maybe four or five, but it wasn't broadly syndicated. It wasn't rated. And so it evolved over time as, as it grew to that. And with what was going on at 2008, it was, should I say, exciting? Yeah. So let's, let's paint, the, paint the picture for our listeners. Again, I know many of them are familiar with it, but so, I think yeah, to put it in the context uh, of what you were doing, I think this is really interesting, frankly, you know, what you were going through in the context of the middle of the, the great yes. financial crisis that was going on at that or bubbling was, at that time, I think we, is, is fascinating. It, it is. It is very fascinating. So you know, the, the first I, I feel of it at the beginning when, when Bear had that call in the beginning of March of 2008 saying that there may be some liquidity issues, Bear Stearns, and that began um, what headed over the next six months, continuing issues across the board. People began to realize that the real estate bubble was bursting a year earlier in early 2007. I was at a conference I was speaking at. I was backstage with a very senior man from an investment bank. And I I said, you know, what's keeping you up at night? And he said, FICO scores. Mm. FICO scores. Interesting. Why is a FICO score? You're head of investment banking. And he said, because we don't know if it's 680 or 610 or 580. And, you know, thinking a year later, obviously, that was what was going on at the time. And so when, you know, spring of 2008 came and the magnitude of the liquidity issues began to be recognized, it just, the pressures built up. And by the time, when you and I have talked before, one of the questions you've asked, uh, what is something you've learned from? And, And one little tidbit I'd say is we launched in March and we had our, you know, right on schedule process for first round, second round, and we were all ready to close in mid-August, so roughly August 15th. And uh, one of the investors was on vacation and we said, okay, we'll push it out to September 15th. So if I can give anybody a lesson, get a drone, get a horse, get a car, (laughs) go (laughs) to wherever vacation is, keep things on schedule because that was a very long month between mm-hmm. August 15th and September 15th, because in that specific month is when Polson was out and around trying to raise capital for a number of the firms. Layman's issues were coming out, Merrill's issues. In the end, uh, that, that actual Tuesday that the government was taking over AIG and Fannie Mae and Fannie Mac um, and B of A buying Merrill, Layman filed bankruptcy. Um, we closed and funded and started with 26 people, a team day one, and said, we're going to, we're going to build this business. We have a clean slate and a strong track record and a lot of terrific relationships. And we think the market's going to get better. I, you know, that moment in time, I just find to be extraordinary for those of us that, you know, lived it. It seemed as if the world was ending, certainly the financial world. No one yes. knew what was going to happen. Yes. We we're living through unprecedented times. And it's astounding to me that you were able to successfully close that, that you know, close your funding uh, for that in the middle of all of that hurricane. <laughs> it is. 
It is. And it was a hurricane across the board in the finance community. But Level Heads moved forward and said, you know, we're, we're going to reach our goal and let's just quietly start marching. But on the other hand, you couldn't have closed at a more perfect time either. 100%. Right? And so give a sense of why that was a perfect time to close. So you're 100% right, um, because that allowed us, the market was frozen. It allowed us our first six months to, you know, get our bearings. You know, it's a startup, right? So we were starting a new company. We had to, finding the name was a challenge in and of itself. Every, you know, tree and Greek god and street was taken. Um, <laughs> so, you know, you have to find a name and you have to make sure you can get the domain and, and you have to make sure it makes sense for who you are and what you want to do. And, and even then, when we started, we were primarily a healthcare focused finance company, private credit. We knew or we envisioned down the road being more than that. And so we didn't want a healthcare name or that in our name. We wanted mm -hmm. what we did, which was mid-cap financing. We mm -hmm. finance middle market companies and we help them grow. So that name was available and we were lucky to take that, hired people and yeah. getting office space and a logo and you know computer systems and funding mechanisms. So with, with the rest of the world, we weren't missing out in business because there wasn't a lot happening in the M&A world or in the broader private credit market. So it did allow us to you know, focus on what we needed to do to get the business growing and methodically expand. You know, one of the other things that I think makes us unique is um, from day one, we, we didn't start with just one product. So I am president of the Financial Sponsors and Leverage Finance Group at Midcap, which is the largest part of Midcap, but we have and have had since day one other significant product lines that are always busy, you know, depending on the various markets. So from day one, we had real estate financing and asset-based financing. We had my group in sponsor and leverage loans. We eventually continued to start and build and grow a venture debt business, lender finance business. We expanded the last couple of years with franchisee lending. So, you know, we've continued to grow the business beyond healthcare as an industry. We are all industries now and quite diverse. But but even then, you know, asset-based lending in 2009 was needed. And so, that, you know, we could do that right away and didn't have to wait for the M&A market. So we were, as a firm, continually active and growing. Right. And, and in part of when you, first of all, I think it's great the way you've developed your name, which perfectly encapsulates your mission. But in terms of of building the business in the early years, it wasn't just uh, determining the markets you were going to be in, but the mechanics of underwriting and diligencing and the procedures of closing and monitoring loans, putting that all into place. Can you describe how you kind of put all that infrastructure into place? Yes, I will. So we did start day one, as I mentioned, with uh, about 26 people. Most, almost all are actually still with us today. And we had that benefit of that team. They were our team from Merrill Lynch Capital and we had worked with them. So we had the benefit of those five years prior of 
you know, working with many of those people. Many, you know, went on to work at GE and stayed for a while and some went to other places. But but having a very good core team, and by by that I mean not only originators, but underwriters, portfolio management people who specialized in making sure that, you know, the constant monitoring of the portfolio, uh, legal team, finance, operations. So we had from the beginning, I think our our weakest spot in the beginning was tech. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, we hit bumps on getting the right processes and services that, that we needed. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, we, you know, resolve that. We have a wonderful woman who runs technology and security and everything else. And she's fantastic and been here many years now, but it, it does take all that. Um, mm-hmm. And so putting that team together and, and luckily having, a, you know, a larger core, because if, if you think about it with the startup, we probably didn't need technically 26 people day one with the yeah. market slow. But what that allowed us was that everyone was busy together. Everyone wore many hats um, and we had all the capabilities that we needed to work together to make sure every aspect of a business was being handled. Right. And I'm sure that was just the excitement of starting up, of having a startup is motivating and motivating for your entire team at the time. Yes, it was. It was very exciting. And and the market, you know, did pick back up. Um, mm-hmm. If we look at, you know, 10 and 11 and by 12 and 13, you know, just think about how busy we all were again. Um, I think when we closed, I, I think the investors, we discussed maybe what would be typically a five-year return on on capital. We thought maybe it would be a seven going into because we thought maybe a two-year return and you know, then a five-year growth, but it came back faster. And, you know, by year five in 2013, we were, you know, several billion dollars and grow, you know, in people and in all our business lines and the market was active and we got, you know, calls from every investment bank out there saying it's five years, yeah. time to sell. Yeah. <laughs> So, so So, at some point you did, you, you did sell, right? Yes. So we said, well, if it's the, you know, right price, obviously, you know, we'll do that with obviously the investors. And so we went through a process again in 2013 and had lots of terrific interest and met some, you know, wonderful people growing credit platforms, but we uh, settled on Apollo and their vehicle, Athene, which they were acquiring at the same time. I think that and, Athene- and For our listeners, tell, tell them who Athene, you know, what Athene is. Yes, is Athene is an insurance vehicle that was started just about when we, just before we were, but acquired by Apollo, based in Los Angeles, actually, and now is, as of last year, part of uh, Apollo, so Apollo mm-hmm. Athene they have merged as the entity. Mm-hmm. So initially we were acquired, our investors you know, received their return um, with the investment from Athene in 2013. And then quickly, you know, at the time, I, I believe Jim Zelter, who current co-president at Apollo was head of credit at Apollo at the time, I believe, if I remember correctly, going back to the initial pitch books, um, the credit business at Apollo was about 25 billion and now, you know, hundreds and billions that he has grown that business, done a fantastic job. 
But that just, you know, it shows that it was new at the time. And, and one of the things that as we evolved through 2014, realized that it was a strong platform that we had and should do more than healthcare. So in 2015, we raised additional capital, both U.S. and non-U.S. investors. Apollo is our investment manager and our largest shareholder, but not our sole shareholder. And so with that additional capital, um, we, we grew significantly between 2016 and 2018, expanding to all industries, hiring wonderful people that had experience in the other sectors, business services. And when your, um, AUM went, your AUM went from what to what? Ballpark. So ballpark five to 15, maybe yeah. at that time. And now we're at uh, I, I, 47. I checked yeah. today. We're at yeah. 47. And we expect to be, or, you know, aim to be at 80 in the next couple of years Mm -hmm. um, is the trajectory. So from one, you know, yes, to five, to 15, to 30, 45, we've just continued to grow. And now we have just under 300 people. We have our three main offices that we've had. From day one, we're headquartered just outside of D.C. in Bethesda, Maryland, Chicago, and Los Angeles. So our primary offices, Bethesda's the largest, but the other, and New York, and uh, I'm in the New York office today, um, our New York office. So we've been able to hire wonderful people in all of those locations to bring their expertise, again, in kind of all facets. We, we've always been big, big believers of origination, underwriting, and portfolio management. So we have, uh, you know, people who specialize in each of those all work together, but that way, if someone, you know, is focused on origination, they haven't lost track of the portfolio ever. And so we always have a wonderful key team managing everything that's existing. And, and today that's a significant part of the pipeline as well, right? So it's when you have a book of this size, that's 500 borrowers, 250 in my group alone, who are growing. So they are going to have incrementals and acquisitions and add-ons on a daily basis. So the, the pipeline of growth on a process that we do is, is at least half as much from the existing portfolio and half from new relationships, new companies that are forming, merging. So it's, it's active in both ways. So when Athena made its investment and as you've grown, what would you say are the, the biggest changes you've had to make internally to respond to that, to that growth? Well, besides adding the more people, it really was making sure we added the right people who had expertise and interest and relationships in the other industries. We have the benefit of being part of the broader Apollo platform. And so there, you know, have always been and continues to be terrific analysts in certain sectors that we are always able to tap for relationships, but also, you know, understanding each individual industry. But I I think that was critical to the growth so that you're not uh, growing haphazardly, you're growing methodically and carefully and meaningfully in the areas you're choosing to be in. And as part of that, we've, we've grown some geographically. We did in 2016 
when GE, by this point, the behemoth, as you mentioned earlier, decided to get out of the business, we purchased one of their sidecars. It was just under $4 billion of uh, 100% plus loans. So we, you know, that was a significant jump to take all those relationships on and bring them into our business. And many of them, you know, we've continued on with and grown with and continued to see those businesses grow. So that was another aspect of expanding the growth. And managing that growth, which has been spectacular. I think anyone would be envious of that kind of growth in the in 15, in only 15 years. What would you say would be the, I don't know, three most valuable lessons you've learned in in managing that kind of growth? Interesting question. Let's see. I'd say be flexible, keep your mind open and listen well, because you want to, you want to draw the best out of, to succeed and grow at that pace. You want to make sure you're bringing the best out of everyone on your team and then doing the best for your borrowers. And to do that, I think you have to listen to what your customers are saying, what your private equity clients' needs are, what your team is best at, and make clear lanes of management. I think everyone, you know, we're very organized as as an entity and people know what to do and how to do it. They feel empowered. I hopefully feel listened to and I think that's important. Nothing gets lost in translation, especially when you're going through a period of that growth. But if you have people that have, you know, seek diversity, we always have in many forms, not just recently, but that diversity of thought and background and training helps and keep your organization organized and make it clear so that your team can be its best for both themselves and, and your, your borrowers. Yeah, no, I would imagine you, you must be doing that in spades because as you said, your original team, most, if not all of them are still there and still inspired. So you must be doing something right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I've got the help from Proskauer too. Yeah, there you go. Thank you very much. So, you know, you're, you're, Um, you're helping us stay in the right lanes. But you know what, that, that does raise a point, which is, it's also, as you said, finding the right, the right people and people are broadly speaking, not just people internally, but externally that you trust and rely upon. So I think that's true for any business, you know, partnerships are important. Yes. Um, how has, you know, you, you've, so you've been around private credit for, well, since its early iterations, as I have as well. And I, I'm, I'm kind of curious to hear, given that you have not, you've lived through the growth of the industry you've experienced, do you have been a part of it and have been a part of driving the growth? How would you say private credit has changed as an asset class over that 15 or 20 years? Certainly better understood today. I think, you know, historically, even, and, you know, when I started, so, you know, we were doing deals for Disney and Fleur and Cubic, and it was, you know, banks and many groups and rated. And so, as as it evolved really, really in the 90s, it actually started in the late 90s, where firms, be it true bank or a non-bank lender, was able to convey to both a sponsor or non, because there's non-sponsored and, and direct to the borrower, that 
You can put a small club of lenders together without needing a rating. We can work with you. We are patient capital and long-term capital. The ease of that, the connection when you need something doesn't take you know a large bank group to go get a vote. So I think as the industry began to prove itself that the benefits that we felt we offered were actually being seen, and then certainly in the last couple of years where it's just taken off completely, I think both because now all around the market is understanding, like I say, these benefits, yeah. but the market is growing and, and, and certainly the broadly syndicated market will come back. It's in a bit of a lull at the moment, but you know we've all seen that. It, it will come back. But I think what won't change now is that private credit will move. It, it will continue to be a significant part of financing when anyone is looking to, you know, acquire a company or merge or carve something out of a public company, there are many benefits in the private credit to work with a lender or a very small group of people who you have a long relationship with and you know how it's going to work. And as it grows, it may evolve, go public, go to the broadly syndicated market at some day, but there are clear paths where this is a better alternative. In the process of growing mid-cap over those years, how did your priorities change at each of those stages, you know, early on, mid-growth and where you are today, if at all? Good question. I'm not sure. I think in the beginning, the, the priorities didn't change. It was just making sure that we were putting all those specific parts in place and being open to change them if we needed to make them better. Then in the middle, it was getting the word out because now we had this system in place. So it was more more to use that. And now, now that I think, as you say, private credit is, is growing, well viewed, it's now to, in, to decide how else we'd want to grow. We're contemplating now going into APAC. Um, and I have somebody there spending some time. Apollo already has some people in Singapore and Australia. And there are, um, it's a very interesting business. So we're looking at that at the moment. And I think as you climate transition is another one that we're looking to form a group on and dig in and make sure that there's something there that we can add value and want to be ready for that. So I think as both a company evolves and as is, you know, the industry evolves, that you're open to make sure you can move with that should you choose. Mm -hmm. And if you were sitting down having a lunch with somebody who came to you and said, I am thinking of starting up a private credit platform now, or I have one early stages, but now I'm looking to grow it. What advice would you give them? I'd say your team is the most important because it really does take a team and uh, that team has to be good in their individual expertise and, and make sure that you have that, again, legal, business, the front end, the back end, how whatever people want to call it, because you don't succeed unless all your parts succeed. And so mm -hmm. know your background, know your track record, know what you are good at, know where you might need something filled in, who to bring on. So be open with yourself on, on what you're good at and what you bring to the table and make sure if there's an opening that you find someone that, that can do that with you. So this has been a, for me, a really interesting conversation. I, I'm 
I have always been an admirer of how you've grown the business there in a, in a very highly, highly competitive environment. And I know it takes up most, if not all of your mental energies. But it is. yeah, but, you know, let me ask you this question. What, what do you do on your free time to relieve stress and take your mind off of this? It's a good question. I do have a, a wonderful family. My husband and I have been together over 30 years and two children, even though they're adults, there's still all sorts of things that are exciting in life to learn from them and do with them. And I am able in this job to travel really the world. And I do try to take time a little bit before and after all of those meetings to make sure that I am if I'm in Portugal, then I'll take a couple extra days instead of just going to a board meeting and, and look around and enjoy that or do that in Ireland or in Japan or in Australia so that... What favorite place know, have you been to? I really don't know that I have a favorite place. I loved Japan, loved being there the whole week. We went down to Kyoto and to expand all that. When I was in Portugal, I didn't get up to the northern part because I didn't have enough time to do that and everyone... Yeah has mentioned that, so my next visit, but certainly what I did see, um, I, I don't know. I mean, I love going to London, you know, all the time when I'm there. So I, I don't know that I have favorite. I just, uh, I do love it all, and I like to take advantage of that. Oh, that's, that's fantastic. Well, um, Claire, I, I very much appreciate your time, taking your, your, the time to walk us through the story of not only Midcap's uh, success, but your personal success. I appreciate that. It's inspiring. So thank you. Wonderful to work with you. And I'm glad to have the conversation. And thank you so much for including me. It's terrific. <laughs>